0: Good
1: afternoon, everyone, and thank you for listening to another edition of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. As always, this is Dustin Reese and joined once again by Cole Little. Cole, how was your weekend this past weekend?
0: Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Lots of football.
1: And speaking of football, that's kind of what we'll start with, and we will actually get to the Bears second today, but I just kind of want to touch on... The national championship game from Monday. Uh, I don't know how much of that game you watched. I honestly, I think, watched maybe one quarter of it. I just really wasn't interested in the game that much just because of the two teams playing. I really do have a strong dislike for both teams that were on the field. but (laughs) Watching the game itself. I guess you can kind of say Notre Dame actually put up a much better fight than Ohio State did against Alabama because Ohio State couldn't stop the Alabama offense whatsoever, and Notre Dame actually held them in check for the most part. And you kind of look at this Alabama team itself and the players that they have, it reminds me a lot of the team LSU had last year, and if things would have panned out, I would have loved to see the Alabama team this year go up against the LSU team from last year.
0: Yeah. I mean, that would, that would definitely be a great matchup. Um, yeah, I watched the whole thing and I mean, you know, like you said, it, it basically from start to finish, it, it essentially made Notre Dame look a lot better. Um, because Ohio state certainly got beat down even more convincingly than, than Notre Dame did. Uh, of course, you know, n- we knew kind of all season that, that, Notre Dame's defense was really a strong point, and um, they had, you know, from time to time would have these periods where they um, just were bogged down on offense, had offensive lulls, and, you know, that seemed to be kind of the case against Alabama because, I mean, it's not like they put up a great defensive fight, but, you know, all things considered, how great that Alabama offense is. Um, you know, giving up under forty points is is kind of a victory in 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 and of itself. So yeah, I mean Alabama just dominated and you know, I mean, to think that Devontae Smith got hurt less than a minute into the third quarter, you know, if he had been able to play the entire second half, like no telling how how much worse it could have been. Um, as opposed to, you know, it already being a twenty eight point. Beat down, it could have been even worse than that, but yeah, that's just a great team. And I wonder how that Alabama team is going to be remembered because you know, I truly think with that three headed monster they had with Mac Jones, Devontae Smith, and Najee Harris, um, that might have very well been one of Saban's best ever teams at Alabama. So, if not the best, uh, and it'll just be interesting to see because they didn't get to play a full. You know, normal schedule how that team will be remembered because um, offensively they never ever not in a single game experienced a, a lull of any sort and you know had a few shaky defensive performances early in the season that can be chalked up to how many guys they left that left to to go to the nfl or, or graduated after last season but then got things figured out and really other than the um you know second half of the SEC championship game or i guess the fourth fourth quarter more specifically didn't really experience any defensive setbacks the rest of the way so yeah just a really great team clearly ohio state was outmatched you know you could also say that the limited number of games they played this season contributed to them maybe not being ready for that game. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, Alabama was just a significantly better team. I mean, Ohio State had some good possessions early on, but then Alabama, the Alabama defense really settled down and, and, you know, and helping matters for Alabama was, um, was an unfortunate injury to up front for Ohio State to one of their, to arguably their best offensive lineman, Wyatt Davis, late in the first half. Cause then in the second half, um, the Alabama pass rush dominated and yeah, just ended up being a blowout. You know, kind of funny that um, despite all the uncertainty surrounding so many of these seasons. During COVID, it seems like the logical champions won. You know, you had the Lakers won, the Dodgers won. Now Alabama wins. We'll have to see who wins the Super Bowl. But yeah, and as for what you said about you know if LSU could match up against that, the LSU team from last year could match up against this Alabama team from this season. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, that could very well determine like who goes down. as you can maybe throw in the. 2001 Miami team the best team of all time is um, at least in modern college football um, have a round robin best of three with those and I would like to honorable mention also throw in the Clemson team from a few years ago that went 15-0 and only um, first team to do that uh, but yeah I mean this is an all time great Alabama team, I think, and it'll just be interesting to see how, you know, this team is remembered.
1: Yeah, and I can't I can't even remember a time where, if you look at Alabama's offense, they have Mac Jones, they have Najee Harris, Devin Smith, and all three of them I think finished in the top four of the Heisman voting with Trevor Lawrence getting in there as well. I can't remember a team in college football history that had that many players on one side of the ball that potentially could have gotten the Heisman depending on how things went. And now you look towards the draft in the next couple months where chances are all three of those players are going to go out. They could pretty much alter the top ten in the draft, in my opinion, because Mac Jones, I think, is a very underrated quarterback who, after the year he had, is going to start soaring up draft boards Devin Smith's going to probably be a top five pick, if not a top three pick. And then you have Harris, who could potentially be a top 10 pick. Alabama's going to just continue to put out the product they put on the field just because Nick Saban's a great coach. And Alabama, to me, is the closest thing to an NFL program in the college ranks year in and year out.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this this is a true dynasty. Yeah, Devontae Smith could will probably be, you know, the first receiver taken off the board. Um, Najee Harris could very well be one of the first couple running backs taken off the board. And uh yeah, Mac Jones is I'm sure has been climbing up uh draft boards all season long. And yeah, those three were three of the um top five Heisman uh vote getters. Lawrence was runner up and then Kyle Trask was uh fourth with Devontae Smith winning it. Um Jones coming in third, Harris coming in thir- in fifth. But yeah, that's you know a true three headed monster, one of the best college footballs I've ever seen in a single season. And yeah, I mean, you know, Alabama just is gonna keep the keep the train moving. I mean, some doubters were questioning if maybe the dynasty, the quote unquote dynasty was over, you know, since they went two straight seasons without um, winning a national championship, which is like a big deal for Saban's Alabama team. And then, of course, last year uh, didn't make the playoff. Um, But, you know, this year they proved the dynasty is, which it very much is a dynasty, is here to stay and. You know It'll probably remain a dynasty for however long Nick Saban wants to continue coaching there.
1: Yeah, and I'll switch over to the NFL side of things, and we'll get to the Bears in a little bit. I kind of want to look at the rest of the playoffs from last weekend as a whole first and then kind of look towards things this weekend. But the way Super Wild Card Weekend played out this past weekend, the NFL proved – to be genius by adding this additional playoff game, and not only that, that Nickelodeon broadcast that happened on Sunday proved to be maybe the best marketing strategy the NFL's had in years. And I'm not going to be surprised at all to see Nickelodeon get more games in the future and possibly have them more on a weekly basis as well. But the playoffs, the playoffs itself, I thought all six games this weekend were very competitive games. I mean, you can say what you want to say about the Cleveland game on Sunday night, but you take away the first quarter and Pittsburgh actually outscored 35 to 17 after that first quarter. So even that game was competitive in some sense. And then like Washington, I did not think Washington stood a chance against Tampa Bay and they pretty much gave Tampa Bay all they could handle with the play of Taylor Heineke. But What was your thoughts on the playoffs itself this weekend? Not talking about the Bears yet because we'll catch them in a second, but the other five games, did you expect the teams to win that one? Were there any surprises? And what are you kind of looking at heading into this upcoming weekend?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's definitely easy to see now why the NFL added a couple playoff teams because, you know, that was – they obviously dominated the airwaves over the weekend three games and three sli- and three time slots each on both days Saturday and Sunday and uh yeah really obviously lots of action um and lots of excitement and yeah the the Nickelodeon broadcast of the Bears Saints game added to that uh but yeah as far as you know the other uh five games um you know for the most part i guess everything went sort of according to plan but definitely but definitely some upsets i mean i guess the you know the technically there were four seeding based upsets but of course the bucks and the ravens were favored so those weren't technically upsets but yeah i mean the two true upsets you know i i wasn't expecting um the seahawks to play that poorly offensively at home against the Rams. Of course, the Rams are a great defensive team. And, and you know, Seattle had a weird season, which I think is why they went ahead and got rid of Schottenheimer, the offensive coordinator, is just because, you know, it's like they started off the first month and a half or so looking like maybe the team to beat in the NFC. And then this gradually got worse and you never knew which team was going to show up. Um, and interestingly, it seemed like as their offense got worse, their defense, which was on pace to be historically bad, got better, strangely enough. But that was a big letdown against a Rams team that, you know, we nobody really even knew if Jared Goff would be able to play. Um, and it took an injury to the fill-in Sutter Wolford early in the game for him to get in. I mean, he probably would have gotten some action, gotten to see some action anyway. Uh, assuming that Wolford wasn't gonna have a great game or, or dominate or anything, but you know they they maybe should have just started golf from the get go, and he played pretty well. And you know overall that was that was pretty surprising though how um, lackluster Seattle was in that game, and then the Steelers Browns the other upset, you know another kind of surprise. I mean with the Browns only getting to practice. Having one legitimate practice all week because of the COVID outbreak, their head coach not there. Uh, I mean, they jump out to that huge lead early on, force all those turnovers, and you know, this I guess similar to the Seahawks, this the uh, Steelers had a season where it was maybe they were maybe fools gold early in the season. Uh, of course, they you know got to eleven and zero, but it was pretty obvious that they weren't you know, a conventional 11-0 and team. They got some lucky wins, some low-scoring wins, maybe weren't as good as their record indicated. But then to only win one out of their last six games, including the playoff loss, uh, that's just – I mean, it has to be a, a fairly historic collapse toward the end of a season, especially considering that you can't really pin it on any major injury. I mean, I know Bud Dupree getting hurt really – seemed to hurt that defense, but him being knocked out for the rest of the season. But, you know, it's not like they had major injury issues and they just fell off the face of the earth essentially. And, you know, Big Ben ended up having like putting up historic numbers in that playoff game and the final score obviously not indicative of how the game really played out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a strange way for, for that season to go. Um, yeah, and as for the other three games, um, you know, Bucks took care of business, uh, you know, Heineke played the game of his life, maybe proved to be the quarterback of the short-term future for Washington. We'll have to see, uh, but you know, Bucks were able to stave them off and, and, um, you know, the Ravens, uh, kudos to them for, you know, being able to, to hold that high-flying Tennessee offense in check, only giving up 13 points. Uh, You know, and and the big question mark for Tennessee was their suspect defense, which actually played fairly well. But, um, yeah, good job by the Baltimore defense to limit Derrick Henry. And, uh, yeah, they, they got revenge after losing two straight sickening games. At home to Tennessee, they went in and and beat Tennessee at Tennessee on what's kind of turned into a chippy rivalry of sorts. So, um, yeah, and then the the other game I'm talking about, I'm missing other than um Bears Buffalo Buffalo beating the Colts, and um yeah, I mean that ended up being a That ended up being a really close game that came down to the wire. Um, But, you know, the Bills were able to pull it out. Uh, The Colts had some kind of questionable decisions, as did Tennessee for what it's worth. I think, you know, the the decision by Tennessee to punt from Baltimore territory in the fourth quarter of that game facing fourth and short was something that was really – Decision that was really questionable. And the Colts just had some, you know, things that didn't really go their way. But then they had something that did go their way when uh, what appeared to be a fumble was, you know, ruled uh, Pascal being down and being touched down, even though it appeared like he had gotten up when the um, fumble was forced late on that final possession. But the Bills were able to hold on, you know, get their first – uh, playoff win and and forever and um, yeah I mean you know that was a certainly uh, certainly was you know a good game a competitive game obviously you know the Colts at 11 and 5 a really good wild card team and uh, we'll just see if the the Bills can keep it moving.
1: Yeah, for the most part, I think everything played out the way as it was expected. Um, Buffalo has been probably one of the hottest, if not the hottest team in the AFC for the past two months. Granted, they didn't play that great on Sunday, but that just shows you how much better they can be when they play well. Uh, Baltimore is playing their best football of the year right now, where they basically had to win out since falling to six and five, and they've kind of rediscovered that offense that was working last year when they went 14 and two so it seems like they're peaking at the right time. Uh, Kansas City's Kansas City they had the bye. I guess you could say the Cleveland game I think was the most surprising out of all the AFC games this weekend mainly because the Browns struggled to beat Pittsburgh at full strength in Cleveland last week or two weekends ago and then Cleveland has all the COVID issues and Pittsburgh was now going to be using all their starters that didn't play against Cleveland in week 17. So I kind of figured Pittsburgh may basically beat them by double digits in that game. And apparently Cleveland was more up to the test than Pittsburgh was. So I'm wondering if that was more of a case of Pittsburgh looking past Cleveland, just thinking that they were the Cleveland Browns of old where they're just going to come in and lay down. NFC uh, Tampa Bay was favored to win and rightfully so Tampa Bay is playing Pretty much like Baltimore, they're playing their best football right now. They've been playing their best football for the past month. Um, St. Lu- or Los Angeles against Seattle, that was the one game that I was the most surprised at this weekend. Not because the Rams won, because the Rams and Seattle tend to split during the season anyways, but just how the Rams won, knowing that Jared Goff was not going to be healthy and that the passing game was going to be pretty much limited and then you have cam Akers, who all of a sudden probably has the best game of his young career that rams defense continues to show either the top ranked defense in the nfl and now heading into green bay where weather is going to be cold it's going to be a physical game the rams might have a better chance than what people think especially if aaron donald and leonard floyd can get after aaron Rodgers. And that leaves the last game, which we'll talk about now. And it's the Chicago Bears against the New Orleans Saints. And I guess you could say it was a fitting end to the season. Um, All year, we've been talking about the Bears offense and how inconsistent it's been where they had three good games at the beginning of the year. Then they followed that up with six very poorly games. And then they had four good games. And then you had the game last week against Green Bay where the offense looked like it took uh, steps backwards. Well, I would say the playoff game against the Saints, they probably played their worst offensive game of the season, and it could not have happened at a worse time. Trubisky really was not himself. I will not even say he wasn't himself. Trubisky really seemed to be missing Mooney in that game. Anthony Miller gets ejected, so that really didn't help his cause. Uh, Javon Wims drops a wide-open touchdown, where if he catches that ball, who knows what the final score indicates but the defense did their job they held the Saints to 21 points and gave the offense a chance to win but offensively this Bears team has so many issues right now and now it looks like Allen Robinson does not want to resign with Chicago next year which is really going to be hurting this offense next year
0: yeah um yeah first off the Robinson news very disconcerting it seems like he's already kind of reserved uh, resigned to the fact that he's he's gonna be moving on, but as for the playoff loss, yeah, you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's it was kind of indicative of the season with the offensive lackluster offensive performance and how you know they they seem to um, go back into a funk at the end of the season. Um, and yeah, that was obviously not an ideal. Offensive performance whatsoever. Of course, they score the one touchdown on the uh, what, honestly, might have been one of the best catches of the entire season for the Bears. Um, Jimmy Graham's one-handed grab, walk-off grab on the final play of the game. But, you know, other than that, didn't score. Other than that final drive with the Saints playing prevent defense, you know, they didn't put together a single touchdown drive the rest of the game. Uh Definitely a disappointing way to go out. But, yeah, like you said, you know, not having Mooney in action was certainly something that hindered that offense, especially with how he uh, he really, you know, stepped up and, and came into his own uh, down the stretch of the regular season. So that was unfortunate. And then, you know, Miller, who was kind of underwhelming the second half of the regular season any, anyway, um, for him but, you know, for him to get ejected with no Mooney in there in the second half. Uh, for him to get ejected like that, which interestingly enough, it was the exact same Saints defensive back, CJ Gardner Johnson, who Wims smacked in the helmet and got ejected in the regular season matchup between the Bears and the Saints. But for Miller to get ejected made things harder on Trubisky in that offense and uh, but, yeah, like you said, the interesting turn of events with Wims, um you know if he had if he had been able to hang on to that easy touchdown catch, you know, no telling how the game would have gone, you know, I mean, as fate would have it, the bears finally you know the bears never seem to really be able to pull off you know successful uh, downfield trick plays, but they finally seem to pull one off. Uh, but, you know, perfectly placed pass from Trubisky, uh, Wims just drops it. And then, interestingly enough, on the, you know, play right before that, he has the perf- another perfectly placed pass from Trubisky that Wims catches up the sideline and, and seems to fumble it while getting tackled out of bounds. But, you know, he had made enough steps to where after the naggy challenge, they overturned it and called it a completion. But, uh, clearly not close on the next drop, but yeah, no telling how the game could have go- would have gone if he had held on to that. But you know, still, I mean, that's really no excuse because you know, for the most part, that off the offense was atrocious, especially in the second half. Just several three and outs. Um, you know, just not really putting up much of a fight. Of course, the New Orleans offense turned it on. Final score could have been worse, but you know, Chicago had the goal line stand there toward the end, and the Drew Brees rushing touchdown got overturned. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fairly, you know, fitting way for the team to finish off its season. The defense kind of putting up a fight as best it, as it can against a, uh you know a power packed. Um, you know, powerful New Orleans offense and, and meanwhile the Chicago offense not putting up much of a fight at all. And Trubisky, you know, with the exception of some really good throws in the first half for the most part, just was pretty lackluster and not much of a rushing attack either in that game. And uh yeah, it just kinda limp into the off season. So pretty disappointing.
1: I know a lot of fans were expecting Ryan Pace or Matt Nagy to be let go this off season or both for that matter. And it does look like both of them are safe. I think we kind of both expected that, especially with the potential of a new president coming in. I don't think that the bears wanted to completely clean house at that point. But the one thing that we need to note now is defensive coordinator, Chuck Pagano has elected to retire and, Granted, the defense was never at the level that it was when Vic Fangio was here. Pagano still had a top-10 defense the past two years, and a lot of fans don't realize it because it wasn't like the defense they had two years ago, which went on the field and seemingly couldn't score on that team. But Pagano is a great defensive coach. He always has been. I just don't think the Bears have the type of personnel in Chicago that fits his system. So maybe this is kind of the best thing for both sides. But with Pagano now opting to retire, who do you think would be a very good defensive coordinator that the Bears should go after, whether it's a former defensive coordinator looking for work, a current position coach in the league, or just a former head coach that may have gotten fired this year that could potentially come in and get that defense a lot closer to the Fangio level?
0: Well, yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, it does look like, you know, Pace and Nagy are going to be um, back in the fold for another year, which, like you said, we figured after they made the playoffs was a, a given, and it is. Um, you know, if this is indeed the end of Chuck Pagano's coaching career, kudos to him on a great coaching career. Of course, he overcame cancer while the head coach, being that serving as the head coach of the Colts. Uh, had a pretty good run there. And, you know, yeah, like you said, the defense the past couple of years, wasn't what it was for the bears, um, under Fangio, but you know, still pretty good. I mean, it's, you know, and I guess, especially if you look at kind of the age of the bears defense and, and what they were able to accomplish pretty good. I mean, certainly lackluster for the, uh, down the stretch of the regular season this year, but, um, certainly helped carry the team uh, you know throughout their I mean what's sort of sad about it is during that six game losing streak the defense was great Um, it was the offense that was so terrible but yeah I mean you have to wonder if that was sort of a you know a situation where it was kind of a mutual decision like maybe the Bears were mulling over relieving Pagano of his duties and he just said well I'm going to you know, I'll I'll save you the trouble and go out with my head held high and retire. Um, so you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it was he was he was sort of the scapegoat of the situation. But um, I mean, with that being said, you know, based on what we saw late in the year with Laser calling the plays, I mean, it's it's worth you know it's worth him being back in the fold, and I can understand also Nagy getting another year. Um, as far as defensive coordinator options, I mean, you know, the ideal option looking back would have maybe been to promote Brandon Staley, the uh, Rams defensive coordinator, to current defensive coordinator, promote him to D.C. at at the Bears once Fangio took the uh, Broncos head coaching job. But he took Staley with him and then Staley ended up becoming the defensive coordinator of the Rams and so far is doing a great job. Um, With that being said, you know, maybe a former defensive coordinator of the Rams, Wade Phillips, could, you know, look to get back in the um, coaching game and, and take on the job with the Bears as a defensive coordinator. You know, he's a guy who has a lot of great, um, experience coaching, you know, veteran-laden defenses and, and making magic happen, um, you know, and I would look to him as being somebody who could come in for a couple years, you know, with, again, with this Bears defense that has a lot of veteran talent um, and just look to maybe, you know, get this defense back to being, um, you know, one of the – truly one of the best in the league like it was under Fangio. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, he's a veteran option, but they might look to go younger. Who are you looking at as as some options for him?
1: Well, I actually wrote a column this morning on this, and I kind of broke it down into three parts. And the first part of the column was basically position coaches that are currently coaching positions Other teams and the names that kind of drew my attention was you have Aaron Glenn, the defensive backs coach for the Saints, who Mm -hmm. ever since joining the Saints in 2016 has turned that secondary into one of the better secondary units in all of the NFL. I know he's getting some head coaching looks right now from his former team, the New York Jets, and a couple teams have inquired about him as potentially being a defensive coordinator. Uh, the other options I was looking at was you have Gerald Alexander, the defensive back coach of the Miami Dolphins. And when you look at how good the Dolphins defense was, especially their secondary, pretty much enough said on that side of things, even though that this was his first year as a position coach in the NFL. Uh, Terrell Austin, who is a senior defensive assistant for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And across the past, past five years, the Pittsburgh Steelers have basically been the defensive standard in the NFL so pretty much getting anybody from that system itself I think would work and then I second portion of the column I wrote was basically former head coaches that were fired this year that have had defensive uh, defensive coaching backgrounds in the past I had Raheem Morris listed on that list but I do think he will get a head coaching job somewhere else kind of if the Falcons give him another shot or somebody else gives him another shot, so I don't think he would be on the list. Same thing with uh, Robert Sala. I think Robert Sala would be a great fit, but I anticipate him getting a head coaching job. And then I put Romeo Cornell and Matt Patricia on that list. Uh, granted, neither one of them have had a ton of success when they've been given the opportunity to be a head coach. But both Cornell and Matt Patricia sure know how to coach up the defense, and you can just look at... The defenses that Cornell's coached in his career, you can look at what Matt Patricia did when he was the linebacker coach in New England under Belichick before becoming the play caller. And New England always had a top 10 defense when he was there. And then the final part of the column was basically kind of what you were going with, with Wade Phillips and like coaches that used to coach or have been fired or have just basically stepped away from the NFL for the last couple years. And, may want to get back into it. Wade Phillips was definitely on my mind uh, given his track record, but giving, given how old he is going to be, I think he's going to be like 77 now or 78, might even be older than that. I don't know how much longer he would be willing to coach. Uh, Chris Richard from the Dallas Cowboys a few years ago, I know he was a hot commodity last year to be a head coach and never got a gig and he stayed out of the NFL since was an option. I tossed Marvin Lewis's name out there, but I think he gets a head coaching job. I tossed Lovey Smith's name out there just just for column debate, but I don't think he'll come back unless he's getting a head coaching job. And then my final two, and you can kind of, after I tell you who I think would be good fits, you can kind of break it down as well. I do like your analysis on Staley, who's with the Rams. And I agree with you, the Bears should have promoted Staley when they had the chance. But I honestly feel that if the Bears were to kind of talk to Staley to see if he wanted to be their defensive coordinator, I wouldn't be surprised if he came back knowing his familiarity with the personnel that they have and the success that he had working with Bangio. So that would be one option. But the other option, and I hate to say it, what is the one thing that you think the Bears defense lacked? this year
0: as opposed to other years. Oh, um well, I mean the pass rush wasn't very formidable. I mean, you know, Robert Quinn certainly was disappointing in that regard. Um you know, maybe yeah, maybe that's that's the biggest takeaway for me is it just didn't seem to be that consistent pressure in the backfield like it like it has in recent seasons.
1: I thought the biggest thing the Bears lacked this year was that physicality and the toughness that they had under Fangio, where they kind of reestablished themselves as the monsters of the midway. Because if you look at Fangio's final year in Chicago, Hicks was a monster, Khalil Mack couldn't be stopped, and you had so much physical play from that defense that it seems to have completely gone away since he left. So if the Bears want to get back to being a physical team, I think Greg Williams would be a great option. Yes, I know his track record with the bounty gate and all this is not a very good look. But Greg Williams does have physical defenses every single year, and no one's going to deny that. And I think that's one thing that this Bears defense needs. They kind of need to get that physical toughness attitude back to get to the level where they once were. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, and along those lines of what I was saying, yeah, that was, you know... Uh, apropos of the pass rush being a little underwhelming was, you know, the, the physicality, like you said, was a little down compared to what it used to be as well. Just didn't seem to maybe have that same tenacity, that same ability, that front seven, that same ability to disrupt games. I mean, even though, you know, Roquan Smith had a great year, uh, Danny Trevathan certainly made an impact. Um, you know, Khalil Mack had his moments, obviously, and, and you know he's still one of top uh, top defensive players in the league. But you know, yeah, this didn't necessarily have that same physicality or ferociousness that we're used that we've gotten used to seeing. Um, so yeah, I mean, Greg Williams, I'm not sure how that would go over with Bears fans if he was. Higher just because of how much of a disaster his Jets tenure was he might need to take a full year off from coaching uh but yeah I mean you know they'll probably certainly look to you know go after somebody who can um I mean they could go in maybe one of two directions you could look to get kind of the older veteran guy who could um you know, get the team back on his tracks for a few years and and reinforce that tenacity and ferociousness. Or they could go with sort of a young, up-and-comer position coach who's never had a defensive coordinator gig before, like you mentioned, like Glenn, Aaron Glenn, or somebody of of that ilk. Um, But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's certainly going to be a big hire, a very important hire, um, especially considering that, you know, the offensive side of the ball, the the coaching staff is gonna remain pretty much the same. Um and yeah, I mean we'll just, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, again, at the end of the day, you know, Pagano and his coaching job was certainly not at the top of the list for the thing of the things that went wrong for the Bears this season. Uh nowhere close to the top of the list to the top of the list really. Um so yeah, I mean, this the big question mark heading into off season will be obviously the quarterback situation, but we'll see. You know, before free agency begins, uh, if the Bears can go ahead and lock down a defensive coordinator.
1: And and we'll the football now, we'll move into college basketball and basketball talk, and we'll start with the Notre Dame Fighting Irish who. Continue to take some bumps and bruises lately Uh, after having their game against Western Michigan postponed. They suffered a pretty one-sided beatdown against a very impressive Virginia Tech team this year. I think they've actually been one of the biggest surprises in the ACC this year. They knocked off Duke last night by seven, and they're sitting at four and one in the conference and ten and two overall. And now the Fighting Irish have a game with Virginia coming up before getting – A couple very winnable games against Boston College, Howard, and Miami before seeing Virginia Tech again. What do you think this team needs to do to kind of get back on track? Do you think it's more of a case of just kind of winning one game and just getting that sense of confidence back, or do you think there's more
0: to it? Yeah, I think that might be part of it. Um, Because, I mean, we talked last week about how they've had some close games against big teams kind of slip away at the end, Um, you know, and they've suffered some close losses. And just gotten on this losing stretch, unfortunately. I mean, now they've dropped um, three three in a row and I guess five out of their last six. Um, And, yeah, lost by double digits at Virginia Tech. But, you know, playing at Castle Coliseum, that's obviously a really tough place to play. Virginia Tech appears to be, uh, you know, pretty good. Perhaps one of the top teams in the ACC. Um, So that's not a bad loss, obviously, but. You know, um, now they have the big game at Virginia. So we'll see how they do there. That's that's tonight. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that might be, uh, you know, part of it. It's actually later this afternoon. But, anyway, uh, yeah, it might be a a case where they just need to get maybe one big win, uh, you know, including perhaps at Virginia today. Uh, just to kind of get them back on track, but you know, at the end of the day, this the the talent might not quite be there. Maybe a little too much youth, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, simply put, they just might not be might not be cut out to be an NCAA tournament team this year, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if they if they're able to string together. I mean, there's still plenty of regular season left Uh, if they're if they're able to string together some pretty good wins they could certainly find themselves uh in the tournament conversation it's just a matter of being able to pull out pull out some wins and you know experience an offensive uptick because the defense has been pretty solid recently it's just the the offense has been subpar
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's always it's always going to be the thing, unlike other conferences, that kind of stands apart in the ACC. Like the Big Ten is known for physical play and defense. The SEC is more known for, like, athleticism and just kind of the style of play. And then you have, like, conferences like the Big 12 and the ACC, which take Virginia out of the equation, but the rest of the conference prides themselves on offense. So Notre Dame, for the most part, has been playing – Not great defense, but good enough defense where they can win some of these games, but just having that lack of scoring, it's not going to help you too much. Right,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: And with Notre Dame still struggling, you have a DePaul team that continues to struggle. They had two more games postponed, and then they ended up dropping two games in a row right after that, including their latest contest against number 25, UConn. After winning that first game they are now sitting at 1 and 4 on the season with Georgetown and Butler and Marquette all coming up. Georgetown and Butler are very winnable games, but that game against Marquette I think will kind of see if DePaul is kind of recovering from this recent stress run because like we've talked about now the last couple of weeks no team has had to go through as much as DePaul has had to go through this year and I mean the season's early for them but it looks like all the constant schedule changes and everything like that is taken a Yeah, definitely. On this team already.
0: Um certainly I can imagine that wins are gonna be hard to come by for this team in Big East play. Um, just feel bad for them and everything they've gone through. But yeah, they've already played Yukon twice, a good Yukon team and lost both times. Uh, the the loss at home the other night, they only it was a low scoring defensive battle. DePaul lost sixty to fifty three. Um, yeah, I mean, they're just going to have to look to get wins wherever they can. I mean, obviously, it's it's not looking very promising right now, um, especially considering the Big East has, you know, plenty of pretty solid teams. And uh, it's looking like DePaul might wind up toward the bottom of the standings. But, you know, the season, like you said, is still really young for them because uh, they essentially missed. Uh, the vast majority of non-conference play. So, you know, they'll just have to turn things around in a hurry.
1: And then you have Illinois, who seemed like they were getting out back on track. They handled Northwestern by 25 points, and both you and I talked about Northwestern probably going to end up losing that game, but I don't think either one of us saw, saw the game being as one-sided as it was and then they go and drop a three-point decision to a Maryland team who is two and five in conference and seven and six overall, but that just shows you how tough the Big Ten is. A team like Maryland, who's sitting towards the bottom of the conference, finds ways to win games, and now they have a number 21 Ohio State coming up at Michigan State, Had or against Ohio at the end of the month. Things aren't getting any easier for Illinois, and they are two games behind front-running Michigan right now, and that Michigan team all of a sudden looks <laughs> like the cream of the crop. Yeah, things
0: certainly them. aren't getting easier for Illinois. And, you know, like you said, since we were last on air, uh, they destroyed Northwestern by 25 at Northwestern. Um, but then they experienced a letdown loss at home to Illinois – or to Maryland, excuse me. Um, Maryland came up clutch down the stretch in that one and now one in one-by-three. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly not an ideal loss. Of course, Maryland is, you know, yet another good team. I mean, the, the Big Ten is chock full of NCAA tournament caliber teams, including Maryland. But, yeah, things don't get any easier. Um, now you got to take on a ranked Ohio State team at home. Illinois does. And, um, yeah, it's just going to be a grind. I mean, the Big Ten has established itself as far and, far and away the best and deepest conference in college basketball this season and you know it's just going to be a, a battle a, a war of attrition if you will to get to the finish line big 10 play and illinois is going to have the work cut out for them
1: well illinois might have their work cut out for them uh, northwestern has not only con- come back to life losing three games in a row but They're in the midst of probably the the most challenging gauntlet that any team in the Big Ten has to face this season. They they had that win against number 23, Ohio State, and then they followed it up with road games at Iowa, at Michigan, then lost to Illinois. Now they have at Ohio State, who's a top-20 team, following that Ohio State game, they have number five, Iowa, then Penn State. Then number nine Wisconsin, then Rutgers, then number seven Michigan before getting Purdue and Rutgers in Michigan again. Northwestern had that nice little run to start the season, but I'm basically gonna say right now the next two weeks are not gonna be pretty for the Wildcats. They're gonna be really tasked with some. Yeah, tough they're challenges. probably
0: gonna be a team that really suffers due to the Big Ten's, you know, greatness and, and depth. Um, because, yeah, after experiencing a really surprisingly good start to Big Ten play, uh, they've hit a speed bump for sure. Um, yeah, they've certainly laid an egg against Illinois at home, uh, got clobbered in that one, like we mentioned. And, yeah, now they got to take on Ohio State at Ohio State tonight. Uh, certainly going to be a tough one. And, yeah, just, you know, so many ranked opponents – projected, you know, on their future schedule that they'll probably have to play ranked teams, ranked team after ranked team. And, uh, yeah, not going to get any easier for them, but, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, they may end up being a team that's record is not necessarily indicative of how good they are. Like, they'll pay the price for being um, in a really good, deep Big Ten conference.
1: Yeah, and that's the problem with the Big Ten this year. But at the same time, it might prove to be their advantage. I was listening to, um, I think it was the Jim Rome show the other day. I can't remember who the guest was on the show, but he was talking about his early bracket prediction mm-hmm. for the NCAA tournament this year. And the guy that was talking said right now he has 12 or 13 Big Ten oh. teams pegged to be in the Big Ten. To wow! Be in the NCAA out, of, tournament. out
0: of fourteen, so that's uh, that's pretty wild.
1: Which basically means take Nebraska out of the equation, and he has the entire conference making the NCAA tournament with five yeah. of those teams getting like top two or three. Seasons. Yeah,
0: that's crazy. I mean, maybe maybe it would be, maybe it will end up being something historic like that. Um, you know, it's I guess the ACC is typically the conference that has an insane amount of bids um you know and i think about the old big east as well uh how many bids it used to get but yeah that you know certainly seems uh, well deserving i mean a lot of the great teams obviously in the country are in the big 10 and this is a deep competitive conference so yeah i mean i, I can imagine they'll get a lot of ncaa tournament bids
1: Now we'll stick with basketball and we'll switch over to the Chicago Bulls and I will say this the record is four and seven they they're not where they want to be but at the same time when you look at their early schedule I think it's kind of where you and I both expected them to be given the teams that they've seen but one thing we can say about the Bulls so far this year it's these Chicago Bulls are not the Chicago Bulls at all not only are they continuing to play shorthanded, but it does look like Markinen and Archie Diakno are going to be back for Friday's game against Oklahoma City, so they're getting a little healthier, and Porter Jr. will be back from his stiff back, but the Bulls take away that first game of the year against Atlanta, and then that second game of the year against Indiana. This team has been in pretty much nearly every single game, and they don't care what the team's record is that they're going up against. They're going out there and they're giving 100 percent effort in every single game. And it shows. Yeah, for
0: sure. I mean, they're hanging tough with pretty much everybody, you know, lost to the Lakers. You know, they had the two game stretch at Staples Center, lost to the Lakers by just two, lost to the Clippers by just three. Um, and I guess since we were last on air, lost a close one, lost by four to the Kings as well at the Kings. But, yeah, I mean, three competitive games in California. You know, this Bulls offense is legit. Uh, certainly, like you said, not the Bulls team of old, um, especially not the op- offensively at least. Um, you know, they're hanging tough and, and winning competitive games. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're certainly going to be in the mix for for making the expanded postseason this year. Yeah. Um, just got to find some wins, you know, just got to pull out some, I mean, like they did at Portland recently, one by three and a close one there uh, on the road. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's like you said, not not the not the Jim, not Jim, Jim Boylan's bulls for sure. Um, Billy Donovan's already really helped to kind of turn around this team and uh, make them competitive. And uh, we'll just see what they're able to do going forward.
1: The Bulls have been affected by COVID to a point. I mean, they've had two players test positive and they've had four players out because the other Mm -hmm. two had to sit out because of contact tracing and things like that. But if you look at compared to the rest of the NBA, the Bulls have done a fairly decent job kind of avoiding any mass outbreak. They had their first game postponed because of the situation with the Celtics. And now more and more games are getting postponed, which is why the NBA Mm -hmm. has not released the second half schedule yet. Because from what I understand, you have that five or six-day break between the first half and the second half where any games that gets, get postponed can potentially be made up in that, little, in that week off or whatever. I guess my question to you is, do you think the NBA has to change their COVID policy a bit? Because this isn't like the NFL where you have a 53-man roster where if you have five players infected, you can – Basically, call five players up in the practice squad and be fine. This is a roster made up of fourteen or fifteen guys. Where five people get infected, that's thirty-three percent of your active roster, and you need at least eight players. Yeah, I mean,
0: already as of earlier this week, um, Adam Silver's cracking down on you know hotel procedures and guest policies and different things like that for players. Because yeah, they have had. <clears throat> already had their fair share of, of you know COVID setbacks. I mean, we you know we've seen teams have to play game play games pretty shorthanded. Um, you know, we've seen some reckless behavior from some of the athletes going out to clubs and whatnot. Um, you know, some prominent names <laughs> as well. But uh, yeah, I mean. You know, I think they're probably going to have to crack. The NBA is probably going to have to crack down a little bit harder. You know, it, it's going to be a grind to just get through this regular season. Um, and, you know, you can't afford to have too many games postponed or canceled altogether so as to not skew the season. Um, and, yeah, right now, you know, I mean, you, you don't have to really turn on the news to recognize that. Things are tough right now with the COVID situation. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad. Um, so, you know, th- these players need to be as careful as possible so as to not avoid, you know, bringing those issues into the NBA and causing the league to potentially have to, you know, cancel games left and right or, or go on a break or or what have you. I mean, that's not necessarily out of the realm of possibility. Um, So they're just going to have to be as cautious as can be. And, yeah, the NBA is going to have to really enforce rules, especially regarding behavior on road trips and, you know, players going out in public as well, going out in crowded places. Because, you know, these players are just going to have to commit to it and just commit to getting through. This regular season, I mean, it's just four more months, and then obviously you can imagine once the playoffs roll around, everybody will be on their best behavior and and following protocols. Um, but yeah, it's just gonna be it's just gonna be a grind, and you know the players are just gonna have to um, take it upon themselves to be as safe as possible.
1: I don't think the NBA wants to shut down. I know they're talking about it, but at the same time, Adam Silver did make a point to say that this was the one month that they were the most worried about in terms of positive COVID cases, where if they can just get through the month of January, the beginning of February and kind of reassess how things are at that point, it might have a different outlook. I just know everyone was, even for the NHL, everyone was worried about this month and into February is kind of, the tipping points because of cold and flu season and things like that. And obviously around the country, we're seeing that, that obviously when the cases kind of actually were a little lower than expected around Thanksgiving and Christmas, but now after Christmas, all this stuff and all the cases are going up, which was to be expected. So there is that. I guess my thing is if a player tests positive, it's one, su- it's one thing and obviously they should have to sit. But then you have that contact tracing policy where players got to sit for, I think, 14 days or whatever. They may have to even tweak that a little bit to If you do have like a contact tracing policy where if you test negative for X amount of days, you may have to be added to that roster just to have a team have enough players to play. Because if you look at the case with um, Markinen and Archie Diakono, They've tested negative for 10 straight days, but because of the 14 day period that they can't play, they haven't been able to take the court. So, as long as a player is getting tested every single day and the test is coming back negative, there should yeah, be no reason totally why they have to a Yeah, I totally
0: agree. That's a little days. harsh and strict. And I have to wonder how much longer that policy is going to be in place. Because, you know, if that policy is going to be in place for the playoffs, it's going to be a nightmare. I'm, I mean, you know, assuming that. Um, not everybody's been vaccinated by then. Um, you know, that's just, that's a little much, a little excessive. I think they need to adopt more of the NFL's approach to that and not be as strict with the, you know, contact tracing. I mean, 14 days is, is you know, quite a long time Um, the grand scheme of things. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that you know, that's something they could look to um here in the coming weeks once we get through this critical period um look to kind of loosen up on lighten up on um but yeah you know it's it's a tough situation and it's this you know it's unfortunate because you know any fan would have liked for the bubble to mark the end of COVID affecting the nba but it's here to stay and it's just going to be something that that is an underlying storyline throughout this entire season.
1: Exactly. And I think it's going to be an underlying story for every sport, not even just in 2020, but for all, everything starting in 2021, it's more of when are fans going to be allowed to come back? How many are going to be allowed to come back at a time? And, Even once you get through that hurdle, then it's going to be maybe even 2022, 2023 even. When is it going to be safe for a venue to have full capacity again for sporting events or for concerts and things like that? And if people think that it's never going to be safe, at what point does the NFL or the NBA or the MLB for that matter, basically say we're going to go full capacity at 10 games at your own risk because we can't afford to go three seasons yeah, without I mean, I don't, full I capacity.
0: definitely don't have the answers to all that I wish I did, but it's just going to be a tricky thing, you know, moving moving forward. Is, is you know, winter teams going to look to – winter leagues going to look to get back to full capacity or maybe get back to, you know – as full of capacity as they can have while, you know, being able to maintain six feet, you know, the six foot social distancing policy uh, with mask. Uh, But, you know, we'll just have to see. I mean, it's, you know, the financial ramifications are going to continue to um, have an impact this year and next year and who knows how long. So we'll see how seating attend- and attendance policies are altered moving forward.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. And like I said, it's, I know the NHL, and that's kind of where we'll switch over to things now. Um, The NHL season kicks off tonight as we're recording this with five games tonight. And I think the rest of the league starts tomorrow. And, The NHL said they plan to have fans in attendance at some point this year. It's just a matter of when they can have them and how many they can have. So far, the Dallas Stars, the Florida Panthers, and two other franchises are the only four teams that have confirmed that they will be having fans from opening night. And I guess the Ottawa Senators are one of those teams that said they will allow some fans as well. So there are some arenas that are already allowing fans in attendance. But with that being said, the Blackhawks open open their 2021 campaign tonight against the defending Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. It's obviously not the game you want a very unproven team to go against, especially when they're missing a lot of pieces in their own right. Uh, Thoughts on what you think is going to happen tonight between the Blackhawks and the Lightning, kind of? what you think
0: the Blackhawks well are I mean be this year. I, you know for the Blackhawks sake especially for their veteran players I hope they're competitive I hope they're a, b- a postseason team um but you know it might be some tough sledding early on and you know they'll look to kind of come into their own as the season progresses of course yeah tonight have an open up at the defending champions at Tampa Bay but you know Tampa Bay, uh, sort of an odd off season where they had like several multiple prominent players undergo surgery and they're going to miss like a sizable portion of the regular season. So I guess good for them that they went ahead and, and won the Stanley cup this past season. Cause it's going to be really tough for them to repeat. Um, but yeah, with that being said, I mean, the Blackhawks could certainly, you know, hope and, and look to start off one and zero with a win tonight in the season opener. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's going to be tough for them to, you know, be obviously a Stanley Cup competitor. But I expect them to be at least a playoff competitive team for sure.
1: And I don't know how much you've uh, looked into the schedule and how much you dove into the schedule, but – do you kind of like how the NHL did the schedule this year where they're basically doing baseball style home stands for each team where each team will get four four home games in a week, two against one opponent, two against the other opponent, then they'll go on the road for a week and have four games on the road, two at one place, two at the other place since it's all since they're playing the same teams in the division all season without any cross division games. Do you like how they kind of did this baseball style home stand and do you think it's something that could potentially stick long term, at least within the division. Not necessarily when you go against Western Conference teams and cross division opponents. But do you think it's something that could stick? I like that they're doing it this
0: division? year. I mean, it certainly makes sense, sense logistically. Um, of course, you know they're Gary Bettman and the NHL powers that be are just trying to get through this regular season as efficiently and safely as possible. So, yeah, that certainly makes the most sense, um, especially considering they're only playing within their division, the teams are, that is. Um, Yeah, as far as moving forward, I mean, I would expect that the NHL and other leagues are going to look to get back to as normal as they can as soon as quickly as they can. So I don't know how much this will play a factor moving forward. I mean, you might see some of it just to mitigate, you know, travel and maybe give teams more rest days. Um, But, you know, I just think for the time being, it's the most appropriate way to efficiently get through this season, you know, in the time of COVID.
1: And then you and I talked about it over the fall, right when the NHL season ended, how – we both wanted the Blackhawks to bring Corey Crawford back, and he ended up signing with the New Jersey Devils, I believe. But before the season started, Crawford decides to opt out of the season and then retires a couple weeks later. Um, I think it was 13- or 14-year career. I can't remember how long, but congratulations on Crawford's retirement. He's always going to go down as one of the Blackhawks' greatest goalies in team history. Where do you rank him among wow. Blackhawks greats not yeah
0: I mean certainly one of the greatest one of the top three goalies I think it's fair to say in Blackhawks history um you know you make the case one of the top I don't know 15 players or so in that storied franchise's history maybe you know some might say even higher than that but yeah I mean what he was able to do um you know, in the two Stanley Cups, the Stanley Cup wins he was a part of for that team. Uh, cannot be understated. You know, his constant presence was, you know, in that was so huge for that team. Of course, he was such a reliable goalie. Um, unfortunately, you know, the concussion issues and some other injury concerns seem to kind of uh, drastically cut back on his effectiveness late in his career. You know, if this is indeed the end of it for him, then kudos on a great career. I say that just because it was kind of odd, like the situation under which he retired. He, you know, was kind of missing practices and then opted to take a leave of absence and then abruptly announced his retirement. So I don't know if it's him maybe looking to, you know, reevaluate things next season like after covid's hopefully no longer a serious issue or or you just need some time away or if this is truly the end um which for now i mean have to assume it is uh so you know obviously congratulations on a great career and yeah being one of the greatest you know goalies in the long history of an original six team i mean that's certainly a wonderful accomplishment um And, yeah, just, you know, congratulations to him, and and he's certainly a Blackhawks legend.
1: Last topic of the day will be Major League Baseball. And finally, after basically two and a half months of very limited to no free agent action, It seems like not only the free agent market's starting to gain some traction, but the trade market is as well with the Padres kind of kicking things off, getting Blake Snell and Hugh Darvish, then the Mets following by getting Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. Uh, With uh, Rob Manfred basically coming out, I think it was either Sunday night or Monday saying spring training is going to start on time. Their goal is to play 162 games that are not going to require any vaccinations and things like that. It seems like, I think, teams kind of now have a picture of what to expect this season so now it looks like teams are kind of going to start getting in line and kind of either start spending money start making trades and get their team ready for spring training but one thing we do know is the White Sox sure don't care about the financial constraints that a lot of other teams do as they've made no secret in their desire to compete not only this year but long term by getting Lance Lynn for on a multi-year deal and now turning around and getting the best closer on the free agent market in Liam Hendricks uh, a couple days ago. Uh, they already have guys like Alex Colomay in the bullpen. They have their flamethrower Garrett Crochet in the bullpen and now adding Hendricks to the mix. This White Sox team is really establishing themselves as potentially the team to beat in the American League this year. I'm not going to quite say they're the team to yeah, beat Yeah, mean, like but you they're said, they're the going all out.
0: There. They're not worried about any financial ramifications here. They're just trying to build as complete a roster as they can. And, yeah, adding Hendricks to that bullpen, um, you know, is potentially a huge move. I mean, that could really make the difference. Um, you, you know, that could certainly add to their win total, per se. Is having him at the the back end of that uh, bullpen because yeah he he put up some solid numbers and had some really solid appearances for the A's so yeah it's a big move and you know they're just they're stacked they're loaded and they're going all in.
1: It kind of makes you wonder if. Now the Cubs should have went after Colum A last year or even 2019 when they were rumored to be in on trading with the White Sox for Alex Colomay because you have a guy who saved, I think, 40 games three straight years in Tampa Bay, went to the White Sox in 2019, saved, I believe, 37 or 38 games in 2019, and then he was 19 for 21 in saves last year. He's no longer going to be that team's closer. He is now going to be the team's setup, man, where – the Cubs have a closer in Craig Kimbrell, who after what we've seen the first two years in him, I don't know if he's going to be able to be trusted in the ninth inning role anymore. It would have been really nice to see the Cubs get Kalame ahead of that 2019 season when there was that. Yeah, card. definitely. Cerrone, I mean, We'll just have, have to Sox see
0: term. what Calumet's future holds. I think a lot of teams are interest. Several teams are interested in him right now. Um, interested in signing him, but um yeah, you know, I mean, there are a lot of things looking back that you got to kind of wish the Cubs would have done within the past few years. But you know, certainly adding him to the mix um, would have A to the mix would have been great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know the 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 um, the White Sox are reloading and and just you know spending money left and right. And uh, meanwhile, the Cubs are seemingly taking the opposite approach.
1: Yeah, the Cubs, I mean, they really haven't done much of anything this offseason. They've traded away Darvish and Caratini. They've gotten rid of Elmora and Schwarber and Escalzo, among others. They lost. Quintana, Lester, Chatwood, among others. And I mean, the one thing the Cubs are continuing to do is sign minor league players for minor league depth. So I guess they could have an exciting minor league system this year if you look at it that way. But it does seem that the Cubs are on the verge of, I'm not going to say making any huge deals because I don't expect any huge deals to be made. But it does seem like the Cubs have a plan in place for what they want to do. In terms of a backup catcher, I know the name Jason Castro continues to be thrown around a lot, and I think he would be a great fit in Chicago, similar to what David Ross brought to the table when he was in Chicago. He'd be like a cheap one, maybe two-year option that you basically know what you're going to get out of him. He's a veteran backup catcher that's going to start maybe one game a week, and he's just going to come out and do what you ask him to do. But the news that came out today is The Cubs are going to be one of 21 teams going to watch Corey Kluber pitch this afternoon because Kluber is telling teams that he's finally healthy for the first time in two years and is looking to stick. I know I wrote a column on this about a month ago, how the Cubs should give Kluber a one-year contract in terms of kind of like a prove-it deal, and I think he would be a great addition to the rotation. He's not an ace anymore, but – he has more experience than Elsoly and Alec Mills. Yeah, definitely. I think I mean, he would be, be, a be a nice addition. To the
0: rotation assuming 20. he's healthy, he would be a nice addition to really any rotation. Of course, his I mean former you know Cy two time Cy Young winner, and his career just kind of tabled off these past couple of years due to injuries. Um, of course, the Rangers' stint last year didn't work out. He got hurt, you know, from the get go, and and missed the rest of the season. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I can imagine that, like you said, with 25 teams showing up to watch him, I can imagine that there's going to be a competitive market for him here in the near future as, as teams prepare for spring training in the not-too-distant future. Um, but, yeah, if the Cubs are able to add him to the mix, that would certainly alleviate uh, at least part of the um, – you know, void left behind by Darvish's departure.
1: And I know the Cubs have, like, young pitching talent in the minor league system that is eventually going to have to get here. And the way the rotation looks right now, you know that Hendricks and Davies are going to be the top two. And after that, they have Mills and Elzelay penciled in to be the three and the four. Mills, to me, is certainly not a number three. I think Elzelay would be a better number three than Mills, but given his lack of experience and his injury history, I don't know if you can trust him long-term to be like a middle-of-the-rotation starter just yet. I still think the Cubs need to either trade for another starter or figure out a way to bring in like another starter to be in the middle of the rotation, whether it's Kluber like we just talked about otherwise, I think. Rick Porcello would be a good option. Uh, Chris Archer, I think, would be a good option. And even Jake Odorizzi, who the Cubs would try to get prior to 2017 before he signed with the Minnesota Twins. You kind of see that, too, with the Cubs, where they have the four starters in place, but they do kind of need one more arm and not yeah, necessarily a back of the rotation totally. arm. Do you think they and need I mean, more
0: of a middle of the rotation obviously arm? obviously a role that um, Lester could, could potentially fill if he chose to come back. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that they need at least one more established, proven pitcher to uh, shore up that rotation.
1: And I guess the biggest problem I have with the rotation now, it's actually two problems, but there's nothing that I can do about it, obviously, is you have Hendricks, Davies, and Mills as 75% of your rotation right now. Neither one of those guys has a fastball that averages 90 miles an hour. And out of every single qualified starting pitcher, I think those three are three of the five slowest in terms of average velocity. So that's not going to go well if they can't hit their spots. Right. But the other concern I have is the Cubs don't even have a single left-hander in their rotation. They went from having three lefties in Lester, Hamels, and Quintana to absolutely no lefties right now if the Cubs even want to compete for the division, if they even want to have a chance to make the playoffs, there is no way they can get through a season without a left-handed starter in that rotation. And Braylon Marquez is certainly not ready to be that guy. So where do you think they go from here in terms of getting a lefty and who do you think that lefty would be? Considering the left handed market is not, yeah. Where I mean, I guess the most logical answer to that question is.
0: right now is Lester, you know, just looking to bring him back f- for one year, for one more year. Um, you know, if he's up for it, I mean, it, you know, assuming he doesn't want to take his talents elsewhere or uh, maybe call it a career, but it seems like he at least wants to pitch one more season. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree, you need to have you know after having several left handers for several seasons you need to have at least one left hander at that in that rotation so you know right now i mean it's mid january so it seems like the most logical answer is just to bring back lester for a short term deal but they might look elsewhere
1: yeah i i mean i would love Lester to come back at least for one more year so he can leave on his own terms. I just don't think given his age and given everything he's accomplished in his career, I just don't think coming to a rebuild or coming to a team in transition is in the cards for him at this point. And given that he does live in Atlanta during the offseason, I I've pretty much said he's gonna sign with the Atlanta Braves where he's not going to pitch at all. And I still think that's how it's going to be. I still think Atlanta would be the one team that would get him. I don't think he'll go anywhere else. I mean, he'll probably entertain the idea in Chicago, but I think they have to focus on giving him a more competitive roster in order for them to do that. But the two lefties I like, and one I think would be more of a long-term solution than a short-term solution. So I'll go with the short-term one first. And the short-term solution as a lefty would be Matt Moore. I know Matt Moore's had a injury history the past couple of years and he's never been anything more than kind of a back of the rotation lefty, but the Cubs saw firsthand how good Moore could be in the 2016 divisional playoff when he just handcuffed the Cubs, the Cubs for eight innings. And then the other lefty that I noticed as a free agent that I would like to see maybe as like a three-year deal, possibly a four-year deal is James Paxton and similar to Matt Moore, James Paxton has had his injury histories, but at least Paxton has been an ace in the past. Yeah, those are all very good number three in that rotation.
0: um, Targets as well for the Cubs. We'll just have to see. I mean, we're, you know, just been waiting around for them to make a, you know, a big move that's positive for the the team, for the, you know, at least for the 2021 Cubs. Um, So we'll just have to see what direction poyer wants to go in
1: yep and we should have a good indication on that in the next couple of weeks because spring training is officially five weeks away so the cubs better start making some moves in the near future otherwise it's going to be a very rough spring training trying yeah, to figure definitely out agreed. I mean what needs to happen, happen to, in a short amount of time. You're going to
0: have to round things out here in a hurry because season, like Manfred said just the other day, like you mentioned, you know, everything's going to go according to plan this year. Everything's going to be on schedule.
1: And that's all the time Cole and I have for you today. We'll be back next Wednesday at the normal no, time. Just, As always, um, Cole, is there anything else you want to add? You know, before again, we
0: all- congratulations on a great career to Corey Crawford and also you know Chuck Pagano, assuming they're calling it a career in their respective minds of work. Um, certainly their contributions to Chicago sports won't be forgotten. All right. Thanks, man. Talk soon.